I'd like to welcome everyone. Please submit any questions you have for Darl. We'll be monitoring these as we go along, and we'll try to answer as many as we can later on. So moving on to Darl, it's my great pleasure to introduce my colleague and friend and my fellow Westie, Professor Darl Cole. Darl is a pioneering theorist on social and technical connectivity and the first professor of connectivity in the world. He's published on connectivity in organization studies and organizational dynamics, and he's editing a special issue on connectivity in and around organizations, which hopefully due to COVID will still be out in 2020. Uh, Darl is also a visiting fellow at the University of Sydney and the University of Cambridge. He's currently interested in metaphors for a digital age, and that certainly is part of what he will be talking about today. And if any of this whets your appetite, please feel free to check out and even contribute data to his project website called Metaphors in Use. That's metaphorsinuse.com, but he'll talk a little bit more about that um, during his presentation. So without further ado, let's hand over to you, Darl. Great, thanks, Mike. It's certainly great to see you here. I was thinking about the, um, the other first time I gave a Raising the Bar talk. I must admit it was very challenging, daunting, in fact, uh, going into a bar. Um, and actually, uh, what they didn't tell me was that half the audience had signed up to be there and were totally tuned into the talk. And half the audience were just random diners. And I kept, I spent the entire talk trying to engage the far side of the restaurant, which was uh, at the end, it was, uh, I felt like I got a few of them hooked in, but I presume you're all here uh, wanting to hear a little bit about this topic. Uh, and, um, but if I'm in, I, and I will try not to interrupt your breakfast or dinner. Yes, I am a professor of connectivity, and in the past I've given talks um, on um, connectivity, but also working with robots and the future of work. Often those topics uh, become a bit depressing because people think they're going to lose their jobs, and uh, guess what? I, maybe we're still back there for completely different reasons. And again, who would have thought uh, a couple of years ago that we'd be uh, reaching out to you around the world because we couldn't literally go into bars? Um, but um, let's start talking about metaphor. Now, you might wonder why a business academic would care about metaphor. I'm not a linguist or a, an English uh, scholar. Uh, metaphors are all around us. We see them all the time in, in our life, and we use them all the time. And in some ways, they're sort of uh, unobvious to us. So you might say, well, what is the power of metaphor? However, when you start thinking about what the power of metaphor is, is it, it allows us to understand a fairly complex phenomena, whatever, whatever that might be, uh, through a term or an illustration and that's very clear and crisp in our minds. And so it helps our understanding of phenomena and especially new phenomena. Linguistic scholars sometimes say we shouldn't consider metaphors just frivolous icing. They are actually the cake. They embed the meaning that we make of life as we encounter it. So um, another uh, misspent youth, uh, I never, actually I wrestled in high school, believe it or not, but I also had a 10 year career as an outward bound instructor. Uh, and outward bound, for those of you familiar with it, it's a program that gives you mental and physical challenges. But the point isn't to make you a rock climber or a, 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 a kayaker. The point is to give you those challenges so that you can experience them as a parallel to how you deal with other things in your life. And so it really is one big metaphor for how you deal with other things by dealing with that specific challenge. 
Now, uh, metaphors and organization studies are, are not new, and probably the one that we're all most familiar with is organizations as cultures. We probably don't think of this much as a metaphor anymore because, frankly, we just talk about cultures of organizations as a, a very powerful and, and totally acceptable way to understand them. We, we join cultures that fit with us. We, we idolize amazing organizational cultures. Uh, but really, that thinking only came to us in the 80s. Before that, we didn't really think of organizations as cultures, but it, it came on board uh, and we now use it routinely when we think of organizations. Also in the 80s, and when I was teaching undergrads, uh, we used to use a book called Images of Organization. And on one hand, it was a very difficult book. It was a challenging book. But students kind of did appreciate the fact that they could look at organizations, this thing they wanted to understand through multiple uh, ways of seeing it. And so we all probably understand the machine metaphor where there are boxes and bubbles and interchangeable parts. And, but um, Gareth Morgan introduced the idea that organizations grow and evolve and move like organisms. And they, they might be considered brains that house knowledge, that process knowledge and information. Uh, that they're cultural, as we talked about, that they might be seen as political systems. And surely if you've worked in an organization, you, you can relate to that. Uh, but students also like the idea that they could be also psychic prisons. They lock us into certain ways of being and they make it difficult to leave. And they can even be instruments of domination. In fact, organizations can contain us, you know, uh, lock us down, if you will, in terms of, of uh, limiting our options or tom dominating our lives or dominating markets, as uh, we actually do see nowadays. So um, that was a, one take on it. And more recently, in my MBA teaching, I used another text called Reframing Organizations. And here, Bowman and Deal do the same thing. They say, let's look at organization from different lenses, because those lenses give us access to different elements and dimensions of organization. So again, they use the structural, rational approach, and then they talk also about human resources being the foundation of organizations. They talk about the symbolic and cultural elements and uh, how much that goes on in organizations. And finally, the political lens, that if we see organizations as political systems, uh, as Gareth Morgan mentioned too, we understand that they're not really just rational places. They're places where we have to uh, persuade, we have to align scarce resources, we have to, uh, there's an element of conflict and back and forth all the time. And by getting these different views of something, we get different understandings that we can, we don't have to trade one for the other, but we have multiple ways to understand the same phenomena, which is quite powerful in a managerial sense. One of those uh, symbolic elements is viewing organizations as theater. And this has been written about and documented in the Disney Corporation. And if you've ever been to Disney World, you might appreciate that um, the way that Disney sees its members, its employees are as cast or the theater uh, performance is what they're there for. And whether they're sweeping a street or selling a hot dog or entertaining in a character outfit. The whole point is they're on, on show and as theater. And that, of course, gives them a lot of power to make that organization work. 
Now you might not think that would happen in other organizations, but here we have an organization that you all know about, and this is uh, the classic campus at Facebook, where I was fortunately before the lockdown happened uh, just a few months ago. The classic campus just looks like it's performing. It's Main Street America or Main Street Silicon Valley with free food down the street. Uh, coincidentally, there, this campus was actually designed by the same people who designed Disney World, so there you go. Um, so finally, in the organizational space, when I started uh, thinking and writing about connectivity uh, a few years ago, I actually even suggested that it was not yet a theory. It's, there's no general theory of connectivity, although we, of course, keep working away on elements of theory. Um, but I just described it as a metaphor and tried to look at it in that way, that it's a borrowed a little bit from the technical world of uh, connecting routers and data to how we now use it in a social sense of connecting one another. So um, that's kind of the brief history of um, metaphor in organization studies. And finally, in my teaching, um, I've used a simulation called Mike's Bikes. It's a business simulation. It's quite intense. It's, um, it's sort of the outward bound of business school uh, projects. It uh, gets people over their head quite quickly. Um, and to set up my students, whether they were undergraduates originally and now in the master's business master's program, I use this story of a little boy who leaves a village, the comfort of his homeland and his home. He goes with his dog into a deep, dark wood where he doesn't know what's going to be in there. And eventually he can't hear the village. He carries on and comes to a place and some challenges in that woodland. And importantly in the story, he, he doesn't run away. He confronts the challenge and carries on and realizes this is the place where I will learn. And it's funny because over the years, I mean, I tell lots of stories in class and I uh, try to make sense of this simulation through uh, lots of uh, you know, business school lenses. The story of the little boys often resonated with students very well because they understand when they're in an uncertain territory and that things are hard, they realize that, well, maybe I can make sense of this as this parable, this story, uh, and the metaphor helps them kind of get through a tough situation. And so more recently, again, in the last year or so, I thought of the digital age. We know a lot about digital um, devices. We know a lot about digital natives even. Uh, wouldn't it be interesting to know uh, what their metaphors are for the digital age that they've grown up in? Um, most of my uh, master's students now, as you might imagine, are um, digital natives. They, they range in age, but uh, more or less they've grown up with a lot of digital technology. And all of them, of course, are on their smartphones these days. Um, however, as I mentioned, I was away at uh, the beginning of this year and came home and um, the world had changed. Um, so the world had changed and we now have had this synchronicity of basically the whole world being locked down. Uh, forced to work at home. And that means that for the moment, we've all experienced what I would call a grand social experiment, a grand comparative view of what it's like to work from a different place and how that feels for people. So with that in mind, I added a second tab to my website. So there's a digital life tab. If, uh, if you're, um, you don't have to be a digital native because a lot of us immigrated to digital life. So that's, uh, that's a set of questions around what uh, you think of technologies. Um, but I added the working from home tab onto the site. 
and trying to understand what people how people were making sense of their experiences. The, uh, these are initial findings, and so we're still gathering data. Um, but I want to just share some of those and then welcome your reactions to what we've heard so far that uh, working at home is like. Um, so we get this kind of duality where, uh, on one hand, uh, things are good, and then they're also not so good. So uh, we look at the technology as being a bit like me, a bit worn down working well, but also crashing and fatigue has been one of the uh, common anecdotal complaints. Um, and of course, technology sometimes does sting us where we, when we least expected. But like a lot of these comments, there's often the other double-edged sword. So in this comment, my savior, but also the devil, because it's always there. So it's so good, but too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. And so those are some of the uh, comments on the technology. Working when my partner is around, um, some of us have a great experience. Uh, we get the cup of coffee, we get the uh, fire and dinner uh, made. Uh, for some, it's not that great, but for some of us, it, it brings back together the elements of our life. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, but the integration of life and work has been going on for a long time now. This is not anything new but it will have certainly ramped up the evolution. And some of, for some of us, that's a very positive evolution. For some, maybe not as much. Um, the other factor is that it's like li uh, living in a television studio with your best friend. And uh, one uh, participant thought that every day seemed the same. I mean, perhaps going to the office, you always have a little more variability with traffic and what happens in and around the office. But somehow or other, getting up and getting in the same clothes every day, uh, maybe just kind of going through a very common routine, feels a little bit like Groundhog Day for those of uh, you who know the film reference. Now, of course, monitoring and surveillance is um, one job of managers. And in this case, um, uh, participants sees the supervision, uh, virtual supervision, a bit different, like big brotherish. And that might be because the supervisor, our boss, or literally shows up in our bedroom or in our laundry or our study, uh, as opposed to uh, in the more neutral space of an office. Um, but they're there all the time, maybe. You get to see the, their head popping into all kinds of meetings. So it's raised lots of issues. And I'm sure going forward, there'll be lots of studies about um, managing in these mediated environments. And of course, there's kids. Uh, kids in the background, kids in the foreground, kids all around. Uh, pets also feature highly. And um, this is uh, an interesting take that some of us will share, that there's a, a great element of, um, of uh, intimacy that's quite nice. And sometimes I've been interviewing people lately and uh, you know they'll have their young child there and right on their lap or right next to them. And it just adds another dimension of the, their presence. Uh, but at times you're trying to manage noise and uh, distraction too. So uh, that's not surprising, I'm sure. So generally, um, some of the images that came from uh, folks like yourself, um, working from home is like a cocoon. It's, uh, you know, again, individualistic, but in this case, safe and cozy and allows us to grow and pro progress maybe. Um, it can be like a wilderness where we're not exactly sure how to do things. We've got all this gear around us and, and there's no one to look over the shoulder and ask how to do things. So it can be a, a unique sort of challenge in that way. 
Generally, it can maybe bring up silos where you, you end up hanging out a lot with your own division, your own department, your own um, uh, colleagues that you're very close to, but you maybe haven't heard from those folks down the hall or on another floor for a long time. And maybe there's even more distance going on in the organization. I also thought this was an interesting, it's like eating sugar-free brownies, it has its advantages, but a little less satisfying. So again, um, people often say they're getting a lot of work done at home, but possibly it doesn't have the full feel of what they consider their, their normal job or their job in a, another setting. And work at home, again, has this contrasting. For some, it's a dream. It's living the dream. Living the dream, being able to get paid, uh, work at home, work where I want to be, have the flexibility, have my, um, my Fano and my family around me. Uh, we can see it that way, or we can see it like being in a prison, um, but pretty limited. You don't have access to all the uh, diversions that you normally would take for granted and look forward to. So it has a bit of uh, both sides to it. What might be interesting is to think uh, going forward is how a technology approves one more time. We know this about technology. It appears as a technical feature or something we can do something with, but we quickly take that technology and apply it to other things. So um, maybe you've never uh, done a virtual family meeting or family gathering. You probably never had virtual drinks with other people, but we certainly, we learn these technologies, these tools at work, and we take them to other applications in our life. And this again is how we, how a technology extends its uh, our span in our life. We also might think about um, what you would keep from lockdown. What, what did you do either at a personal routine level or among your team that actually made a lot of sense, but you didn't do it before? And so, for example, some of my colleagues are doing check-ins at nine in the morning each day. And I know the agile scrums are like that. And it has that really nice, element of teamwork of getting people together on the same page doesn't have to take long and maybe people would take something like that that they learned in the lockdown and bring it into the unlocked office and also when you go back if you do go back to your office you might say well what do i really miss and why what what did i like about meetings or maybe you think how can i make meetings more efficient or better uh, going forward and what are you eager to resume and what does that say about your team at the office or that your work setting and so we come to appreciate things because we've lived without them. Uh, also you might think about um, what would have what would have been like if your organization had just said right next week you're working from home that's it everyone um, what would have, as a thought experiment, would that have worked out? And probably not, uh, or there might have been some resistance. And an interesting thing to think about, of course, in the circumstances, we, we of course, did it. Um, and then who would resist such a move? Would it be senior management, middle management, uh, others in the organization? And why might they resist such a move? But we have done it now. Um, and again, what would you change in your organization now that you're going back? And I've already heard organizations, large organizations in New Zealand that are proposing that they use a modified homework balance, uh, homework approach. So people might come in three days a week and then have two days at home, et cetera. And um, so this is an opportunity that I'm sure a lot of us might be thinking about as we go forward. Now, the other thing to think about going back to Disney and performing in theater is has work become more of a performance? We always knew, we've always understood in organizations how important um, 
uh, first impressions are. And we manage our impressions somewhat in a, well, we do on a day-to-day -day basis, how we dress and how we kind of respond to people. And we, we learn this, of course, from kids. So it's a very natural thing to do. When we have to do it with a screen or through a medium, how has that been uh, changing the way we present ourselves? Um, something to think about. And again, it'll be easier for some, more difficult for others, and yet, what will that allow us to do going forward? Communication scholars already talk about visibility behavior, and they talk about sharing spreadsheets and what's visible on servers, et cetera. But I think we'll start to see that our visibility in and out around the organization might also be modified based on this. Um, and um, how does it even change when we get back to the office? Sometimes uh, people don't go to meetings now face-to-face -face already. This is pre-Zoom. Uh, just on large campuses or in multi-story buildings, they would go to meetings on Zoom uh, or on virtual platforms, Teams or whatever uh, anyway because they didn't want to spend the time and effort walking across campus or up and down the elevators. Sociologists have known for a long time that there's this thing, this notion of a third place places that are in between other places. Now, Starbucks, um, famously, if you don't know it, their concept and their, um, they've co-opted that third place idea. And if you think about it, that's what they've set out and done pretty well. It's a place that you can call by when you're not at the office and you're not at home. You might meet friends there or not, but you can, or you might do work there or not. And so this Third place is another realm that we all have, or many of us have. So it might be a commuting on a train ride. It might be a visit to the gym. It might be a visit to a mosque or, a, or to a church. It can be various things. It can be a walk to the office uh, through a park or something, but it's a space that's neither home nor the office. What we're probably learning too is a reminder that we are social to the core. Some of us could work in isolation forever and prefer to work independently, very self-contained. Uh, it's not just the introverts, but many of us have known for years, those of us who worked at home uh, over the years know that we can get a lot done that way. But we also want the energy, the ideas, the, um, the inspiration of being around others. And we have friendships there. And so we also know that we will have a, a pent-up demand for those social affordances again. And of course, with... Um, so much connectivity in our lives uh, heightened by the lockdown. Uh, we understand this paradox that we've perhaps been never more connect, uh, connected, uh, but perhaps uh, at more and more risk of also being disconnected. And these are large social issues, but issues that organizations uh, do have to also consider and deal with to some extent. And then um, one of the things I think it's important for us to remember is that one of the projects I worked on years ago was uh, looking at um, distributed work teams, and mostly engineering. And they were, this was a global firm and they had um, engineering shops in Europe and uh, the US and in Bangalore, India. And um, we were studying, we thought that we were gonna come up with this magic sort of um, uh, factor that teams would have a high or low connectivity factor, if you will, like an average that would have some meaning. And after years of study, the one thing we learned from the team study is that it's an individual thing. 
So whether it's emails and how much email time, how many emails you received, it varies by individuals. For Mike, it might be X and for Mark, it might be two or three X that they're comfortable with and too little or too much is very much an individual thing. So we know that about email. We'll also understand that now about virtual platforms and virtual media experiences. It will vary by the individual and something that organizations and teams will have to factor in. So I'd like to thank you for your attention and uh, look forward to your questions so we can open up the discussion. Thanks very much for that, Darrell. <clears throat> it was really interesting to hear your perspective on connectivity. I noticed we have five questions um, and while some of the audience might choose to, to type in some more questions, I've got a few questions of my own to get the ball rolling. Um, now you talked about this work home integration the blurring between home and work has been happening, you know, for a very long time, probably, you know, when we got the phone and then the laptop and now our smartphones and over the last few months with COVID, it's more complete than ever, this work-life sort of blurring. Um, what are your thoughts on the importance of disconnectivity? Well, as you say, I totally agree that, that if, if, um, what we'll be experiencing now is a super sort of amplified integration. The integration trend has been going on for a long time. And, and you notice we don't talk even that much about work-life balance almost because the notion of balancing them again is it kind of, well, it's kind of contrived. We don't really live like that, but certainly the integration has been pushed together. And then to your point, that means that our ability to disconnect is also going to be that much more uh, heightened. And this I've found is not a generational thing. Originally, I thought, well, you know, this is a, you know, I'm a digital migrant. I came into the digital world. Um, but digital natives seem to have the same thing and, and they have their own simple rules. I'm a big fan of simple rules and routines. So whether it's uh, shutting off screens two hours before bedtime, which especially for children might is a good thing or an hour or so, some, some parameter. And even as adults and professionals, having simple rules around screen time, simple rules around moving and physically getting away from screens or sitting too much. Um, that I think is just goes with kind of our general, what we know about health and well-being in general, and it does fall in that category. Um, but actually, um, would we start designing houses differently? Uh, you know, think about it. If you have a three-bedroom house, would you start to think about building a two-bedroom house with a really proper studio or a really good isolation tank or, you know, some, something that reflects this idea that there's going to be a lot of media and digital going on in the house and how do we sort of contain that or how do we make the spaces relate to that. I remember once visiting a home that was uh, by two folks who did work at home and sure enough their kitchen uh, counter was fully geared to support the devices so charging them all the all the affordances they needed and that's because they they needed that kind of uh, uh, features around their kitchen table basically as much as we are becoming more integrated, the, the need for disconnection is just that much greater. And how we do it will be very individual. Uh, but you know, in the last couple summers, we've heard of people taking digital holidays. And I think we now accept that if someone is offline for a couple of days, they really mean it. They're not just, you know, they're not just teasing us. They actually might be really taking a break. 
uh, and that will suit some people. Uh, and for children, we realize, of course, it's very important uh, to reduce screen time at least before bedtime. Kind of like eating habits or drinking habits, we're learning there, there are fundamental principles about use of screens to promote uh, healthy sort of sleeping patterns, etc. The thing about working the lockdown was that it was so easy to say it was it was hard to say no because people knew you couldn't go anywhere. Uh, they knew that if you were on Zoom this morning, you could be on Zoom this afternoon or something. So in a way, we didn't even have the usual thing of going out of our office and wandering down the street or whatever. And, and so our absence was less excusable in a way. But we have to be able to be absent, if you will, from the connected world. Um, and that, again, comes back to how we manage that visibility and accessibility. But I, yeah, I would encourage people to think maybe about this extreme example to say, gosh, if I had to do another month of this, it would kill me. What would I have to change? And then maybe think about some of the behaviors that you could change to keep your normal work-life integration going or improve it even. What would the sociologists think? of that triangle of the third place and the workplace and the home collapsing into just one space, which we've seen. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Donald? It almost goes back to uh, more uh, uh, traditional societies where, you know, I grew up on a farm and uh, farmers don't leave the farmhouse to go to the farm office. Well, actually some might, but very few. Mostly they just leave the house and go out and start working. And it is really on one place. So I think that um, if you think of some, uh, some of us work in that and shopkeepers, et cetera, might work in that fashion. But for a lot of us, yeah, going to an office is a separation that's welcome and or at least routine. And, uh, and again, that commute to town or whatever is a way for us to change gears. And if we gave all that up and just became based at home, that we would see this integration uh, happening in a very different different level. Um, and by the way, this isn't generational because, um, again, being around a, uh, as you are around our younger generation, they also uh, recognize the need to disconnect. It's not uh, just folks like me who, who struggle with this or, or think about it. It really is a, a human condition about how we can kind of keep at least some separation and some pushback to it. But yeah, it's a whole new challenge. The other factor is that a lot of people with the forecoming uh, economic times might be moving in back home with parents or consolidating households. So not only is there one place, but it's a different social place than the, the, you know, the idealized nuclear family. And that too would, would change things possibly. So, yeah. You know, before COVID, it was seen as that there may have been a perception that if someone works from home too often, they're either less committed or unreliable. Um, so what are your thoughts on this importance of workplace presence or this performance, as you put it? Mm. Yeah, I think the big wake up call for the for the world is for those of us who've worked at home at least some of the time over the years, we, we might we would not we would understand that you can get not just work done, but a lot of work done at home. But I think the common misperception is that, yeah, that, oh yeah, so-and-so works at home two days a week. So we really, she's slacking or he's slacking off. We know. And now I think a lot of us will say, hey, wait, that, that isn't true. I worked at home and I found out that I was working a lot. So it's kind of given us all this slap in the face about what our, our misperceptions were. Now, it doesn't mean the performance 
doesn't need or can't or shouldn't be monitored. In fact, I've talked a lot to small businesses lately because of some other work I do. And several of them who had stepped away from the business, they've said, look, I've, I've come back onto the steering wheel or back on the reins. I'm, I'm taking more hands-on control. So when economic times are hard, often we want to make sure that we're not wasting anything, including people's time and energy, et cetera. So there's going to be this tendency to kind of hold things together at the same time to be able to understand that, well, holding things together performance-wise doesn't necessarily mean coming in here to the office where I can see you. Um, the other thing is that some jobs do lend themselves more to managing from a distance if they have you know, discrete outcomes and outputs can be measured clearly. And not every job has that. Uh, so that's uh, another kind of challenge for organizations. But if you, if you know what you're supposed to deliver and it's easy to measure, then it's much easier to say, well, do it wherever you want. And we might also see that, that third space being used differently too. Offices might downsize their corporate uh, real estate profile and actually allow people to work in cafes more. I've, I've often been amazed uh, that given the culture of coffee in New Zealand and, and especially in Wellington, Auckland, Christchurch, that we don't have more work being done in these beautiful cafes because overseas often, especially in college towns, you see whole businesses that run basically out of cafes and people do a lot more work even in that cafe space. So again, the three triangles make sense, but who knows how we go from here. Yeah. And to segue off that question onto um, another question by Denise, um, she's, she says that in the first six weeks, there was a general perception by managers that working from home was actually very good, as, as we've just spoke about right now. And everyone's productivity was vastly improved for you know, the reasons you mentioned as well, Darrell. Yet there seems to be a sense now, and I touched on this as well, that returning to the office is the ideal, better for everyone and the employer. Is there still an element of mistrust by employers about working from home? So I guess this is a direct um, parallel of the question I asked earlier as well. Yeah. One of the things we know is that in extraordinary circumstances, extraordinary things can happen. But to get real behavioral change over time, whether it's a technology change or a culture change, or in this case of culture and technology change is very difficult and people snap back if you will to the to the original position or behaviors so yeah i and in fact again if we were to study this uh, i would imagine in a year's time if things remain equal in terms of the virus going away a lot of workplaces will default back to the office model and justify it. Remember as humans, we can, we can make sense out of tea leaves as a species. So we will make sense of it in all kinds of ways that we're supporting the CBD and poor real estate, you know, landlords or whatever, uh, or that we have to see each other for meetings or something. So, and I'm not poo-pooing those reasons. Some of them are real. Um, but I would say the challenge is going forward and just to have conversations in the workplace about this, a groundswell conversation might be a very powerful and useful thing for organizations to do. My sense is that a hybrid would be a reasonable outcome to say, well, we've learned that we'll be productive at home. Why not free it up to have one or two days at home? Why not loosen that up and then still battle traffic and come in the rest of the time or something. Uh, what suggestions do you have to help staff separate work from home when located at home? One thing is to simply very, uh, you know, get up and walk around. Uh, so 
if you if you uh, there is just again the risk of sitting too much too much screen time and one of the simple ways to deal with that from a health point of view is to simply move and change what you're doing and this is easier said than done I mean I myself pretty active and have uh, lots of space to go to but I find uh, that with my my wife uh, reminds me how long I can sit just by being focused on work and so that's one thing is to try to build in routines that break that up. Um, I think also um, to the extent that's possible, you know, again, other kinds of mental activity and not just screen time and not that there's anything wrong with watching uh, lots of TV, but maybe to say, well, if I'm spending work time on screen. Maybe I'll do another kind of hobby that's physical or, or maybe just a different kind of thinking. And um, the other, uh, now that we're out of lockdown, is to do social interactions that, again, get our other parts of our mind engaged and, and just give us the kind of, again, that, that, that coffee break, that, that drink with someone or that talk over the fence to be able to sort of bring, keep that element going. All right. Um, this next question is a little bit more personal, but interesting nonetheless. Uh, Daryl, what is your work from home metaphor? <laughs> I did think about that. <laughs> I thought someone might ask. Uh, the first thing that comes out of my mouth would be uh, living the dream, I suppose, uh, in part because I grew up on a farm. And when, you're, uh, when you live on a farm, uh, work and life are one big thing. There's not, you know, you don't really ever, you don't physically leave a place to go to another place to work. You're just working wherever and whatever. Um, so being able to be uh, here at my place, I find that that is both natural and kind of meets that uh, sort of feeling. Uh, but the way I manage it is I've learned if, several years ago now that uh, I do work on campus and here. And what I do is I don't have any, I never write at the office. So all my writing gets done here. But when I'm on campus, if people drop by and want to talk and students or, or colleagues, then I figure that's what I'm there for. So I go in, I do, I do my teaching, and I tend to do socializing as well as meetings and meeting with students. And that doesn't bum me out because I'm not trying to write there. So I kind of divide my activities. And I think maybe that's what people will have learned too, is that you have to sort of figure out how your day operates best for you. Um, next question is from Yu Chin. What actual impacts do those metaphors have on people's life and way of thinking? If the power of work, if working at home, if you visualize it as a, as a prison, that's going to shape your experience of it. If you visualize it as living the dream, that's going to shape your experience of it. So in a very real way, we, uh, we project again into our uh, behavior, our setting, what we frame it up to be. And I think that that's basic, you know, perception in psychology. And that's where having embedded metaphors, even if we don't think about them is one thing, but also if we start to see them in that way in our mind, that does shape our experience. We could also say that if we articulate metaphors, going back again to those books that do it, let's say that in five years time, we could, we find that really there are five main themes of working for home, five main metaphors. You know, one's the prison, one's the dream and something, lots of stuff in the middle, Groundhog Day or whatever. 
And lots of people might be able to relate to that and then be able to use that as a management tool to be able to talk about it with their team or to be able to have conversations about it. So because if you think about how we deal with organizational culture, we have a whole language around it. You know, we have all the metaphors of onboarding and rituals and um, you know, uh, all sorts of language that's cultural language, and that helps us manage culture. So these metaphors may eventually help us manage the mediated work environment. Thanks, Joel. Um, I'm going to try and combine two questions here, one from John and one from uh, Lisa. Uh, John asks, is there a link between age and successful work from home? While Lisa asks, do you notice generational differences in metaphors that people use when describing working from home? So I think these two questions are somewhat related. Uh, they're looking at, you know, if there's some sort of demographic difference. Yeah. Um, again, we don't have sufficient data to comment very with much authority at this stage. It would, it's very interesting, very good questions they've raised. Um, and again, I suspend my judgment to think that go down the generational differences because I've heard from my students, for example, that they, they my younger digital native students uh, have just as much struggle around this integration concept. It might look different or slightly differently, but it's still the same issue. And so I don't know that there will be. The other thing, if you think about it, is that um, uh, another real factor is that maybe younger professionals in particular are in more constrained environments. So it becomes more difficult. So, uh, you know, we heard people talking about sharing the same studio, but maybe that's a a mature couple in a big house where it's very easy or sharing multiple studios. Whereas if you're in a cramped apartment, you know, a couple of professionals living together might find it very challenging. So I don't think the generational thing, I wouldn't jump into judging it that way. Uh, there are probably a lot of other contextual variables that, that, that factor into it. Right. Um, Andrew's got this question. Um, his, um, post-grad diploma strategy class, they reflected on the enforced lockdown work from home experiences. And some of the students felt that companies which would never have normally supported working from home for those reasons of shirking or slacking will now see that it wasn't actually a disaster. However, others say that the work from home experience due to a pandemic is not your typical work from home scenario where there is no kids or caring responsibilities, limited mobility and, and that sort of thing. So they're asking, I guess, whether this really helps organizations understand the work from home option, given that it was this extraordinary circumstance, I suppose, that, that forced us into it. Yeah, well, I think that would come down to the leadership of the organization and how they choose to frame it. If they frame it as uh, extraordinary catastrophe, had to do it, we did it, now we're back and say we're going back to everything, that's what they'll try to do. Uh, and that may meet with success or not. Uh, again, I'll go back to the organization I mentioned. I won't say their brand name, but they, again, um, you know, a pretty a big organization and they have already decided, no, we can learn from this. We can modify our behaviors. Notice they're not having everyone work from home all the time either. They're, they're doing a, a kind of a hybrid model, sort of three and two. So I think you'll get that blended quite a lot. Um, I would encourage people, though, to not, uh, I, I mentioned leadership, but, you know, enlightened leadership is good and it's uh, also kind of rare. So you also have to maybe voice your uh, experience. Uh, it's a legitimate experience. And if a lot of you get together when you go back to work and say, you know what, we would really like to talk about this. And, and I think that 
the policymakers, whoever they are, would welcome, you would think, would welcome some conversation at least around it. Uh, and again, use the concept of mini experiments. Say, let's do it for a month. Let's do it. Let's take another go at this and then test it out a little bit more. So one of the things going into such a rapid um, lockdown, no one had much time to, to even think about uh, evaluating it, although now we could, I suppose, but uh, th there would be an opportunity to do it that way. And a related question here from Maria. Uh, research is showing that one of the greatest barriers to hybrid working arrangements um, is coming from middle managers and leaders. So what advice would you give them? Well, when in the change uh, management literature, middle managers happen to be a big problem. Um, they're, they're stuck in the middle. And um, so on one hand, they're caught trying to um, operationalize and make strategic uh, improvements or manage the strategy of the organization. On the other hand, um, since they, their, their success is based on the people that they manage, they can tend to go into the over monitoring. They feel a little safer. And I think in New Zealand organizations, we, this has been a criticism for a long time. Many people said, why do we keep building office buildings with Auckland traffic when we could just, you know, let people work differently? And a lot of it does come down to middle managers, unfortunately, getting caught in the, 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 the idea that if I can see people, I can supervise them, get more work out of them. Again, this is going to challenge a lot of that. People will realize that you can be productive and, um, and working in different ways. Yeah, and on that note, um, this next question uh, asks about something similar as well. Workplace presence is one thing, uh, working from home. What about workplace intrusion? So we could be careful what we ask for here if we do go remote permanently. Uh, team members commenting on your home decor, managers calling on your home phone are just some examples. What are your thoughts on that, Darren? Well, yeah, the uh, integration come, uh, yeah, intrusion is, is a very real possibility. Uh, and again, we talk about impression management, but this is like impression barrier. Yeah, it, it brings up a whole issue. Although remember, we're struggling with privacy and security in general in society. I mean, we're wondering too about where our data goes. This is just one of those new frontiers uh, that we will have to look at. And of course there are monitoring applications that measure what's going on in your PC that you, could happen at the office too. So yeah, there is that sort of big brother side of things possibly. Um, and maybe again, we have to find ways to be able to uh, manage that gracefully because again, we have to still be friends with people or we still have to be responsive. But no, that's a, I think it's a good point and we simply don't know yet where it's gonna end up. Well, thanks for that. I mean, uh, that was a, a heck of a lot of questions and we got through them all. So once again, I'd like to thank Darl for his insights and time. So for those in the audience, remember to check out his project website, metaphorsinuse.com. Um, thank you once again for joining us and we hope to see you again soon.